Blog Talk Radio. to the February 7th, 2014 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, the philosophy that upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness, which the framers of our country's founding documents intended for us to have. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and unfortunately, Bosch Faustin is not able to join me today here in the studio. I understand that he's listening, and he might be giving me a little comments here and there on the shoe phone, so I'm glad for that. But I'm excited today. I'm kind of like this giddy schoolgirl because I get to get my geek on in the second hour. I'm going to be interviewing Ladar Levison. He is, as many of you may know, the founder of LavaBit. LavaBit was Edward Snowden's email service provider, and Levison made the choice to shut down LavaBit rather than turn over the company's encryption keys to the government. Those encryption keys would have given the government access not only to Snowden's email information, but potentially to the email information of all 400,000-plus customers of LavaBit, and we had discussed, you know, all of this case on the show, not in very much detail, though, last year when this was going on, but now we're going to get to hear a lot more about it, so I'm excited about that. Um, other exciting things that are going on, I'm actually going to have my first sponsor. This is kind of cool. Blog Talk Radio is going to start uh, allowing us to do some ad insertions. They actually found a company that's going to... Uh, you know, sponsor ads for us. So next week, I'm going to read an ad. It's going to be a new thing for me. I don't know. I'm going to trip over it and stutter. Or who knows what? I don't know. I'm excited. It's very, very cool. Other things that are good is that there's a new radio network that's going to be joining us for syndication. It's an internet radio network called AMFM 24-7, and I guess it's going to start in March, so that's another exciting opportunity, besides already that we are heard on Liberty Express Radio. So it's, it's nice to have your little show expand. <laughs> Robert NYC in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio is asking whether the ad is for the NSA. No. You know, I guess I better tell you who it's for, because... What I want you to do is I want you, if you're going to patronize this particular vendor, someone that I like, someone that I do business with, I would like you to wait till next week. If you do not yet have an Audible account and you're listening to my show, can you hold out? Because next week I'll be able to give you the special link and that will give me credit for my show. That is assuming that you would like to do business with Audible as I have, but I'll sell it to you next week, so... We'll listen to that. I, I, I'm excited, right? Because you think, oh, well, a sponsor. Okay, maybe it's somebody I'm not that excited about. Maybe it's going to be somebody I don't even really like, and then I would have to turn it down. But no, this is somebody that I use myself because I drive back and forth to L.A. Robert NYC in the chat room says, yeah, Audible rocks. He's probably already a customer. But for people who haven't yet tried Audible and you're thinking about it, just, just wait a week. 
and then next week I'll give you the special link and you can give me some credit. But as I said, hang on to the second hour for the interview with Ladar Levison. We will talk a little bit about some privacy issues in the first hour, but we've got a whole list of stories to discuss. If you go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you will see, as usual, the program notes and I put links there to all the stories that we're going to discuss during the show. At least my ambitious self, I would like to get to all these stories during the first hour. I've got a couple links that are relevant to the interview in the second hour as well. If you would like to discuss any of these stories with me, go ahead and call 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Or you can participate in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio. First story is a privacy story. And by the way, I did something kind of bold, kind of crazy yesterday, which is I was starting to think about if you were going to have a nonprofit organization that was going to promote the proper legal protection of privacy and also promote the value of privacy, what would you call it? And I wanted it to be called something for which I could get the URL. It's very hard to get an original, good, catchy URL these days. And those of you who listen to my show, you know that I have sometimes talked about legalizing things that the government has, in effect, made illegal. And one of the things I've talked about is legalized health insurance. But so my thought was, why not legalize privacy? I wonder if legalized privacy is available. And sure enough, LegalizedPrivacy.org was available, LegalizedPrivacy.com was available. And following the lead of the Ayn Rand Institute that has both the org and the com, I grabbed up both of those yesterday and then said, okay, now we got to get the Twitter and we got to get the Facebook and got all those things set up. Thanks to those of you who came over and liked the page. Now, the thing that I'm telling you is a lot of this is just a placeholder because starting a nonprofit I gather it takes quite a bit of lead time to get that nonprofit status. I'm just looking into that. So it's going to probably be several months before I can get actual activities of the organization running up in earnest and ask people for donations that are tax deductible and all that good stuff. But for now, I've got my little placeholders because people liked it. And what I'll be posting at that page, which is facebook.com forward slash legalized privacy, are my privacy-related activities like the interview that I'm doing with Ladar today. I'm going to be doing a lecture at the Objectivist Conference this summer on privacy. we talk about that. Any articles that I publish, anything that's privacy-related, I'll put there in the meantime to keep people interested in what we're doing until it is actually up and running. So that's kind of exciting. I like that. I would like to maybe do some things to help out Ladar if he continues to go on with his case. Uh, write a front of the court brief, which I haven't done for many years, but I would love to do again for the appropriate case. So these are the sorts of things that I have in mind, and stay tuned, as it were. So let's talk about this first little story that's kind of surprising, but it really doesn't make that much of a difference in terms of how I feel about the NSA. The story is at the top of the program notes over at my blog, don'tletitgo.com. It is NSA collects 20% or less of United States call data. So you're supposed to just have a sigh of relief now because it's 20% or less of the call data total. And, you know, yeah, they'd like to collect more, but, but it's only, you know, 20% or less. So there's a good chance that maybe, you know, your calls are private after all. 
says the program doesn't cover the records for most cell phones. I guess this is a new development. It says the NSA's phone data program, which has been at the center of controversy over the NSA's surveillance operations, collects information from about 20% or less of all U.S. calls, much less than previously described by lawmakers. It says the program has been described as collecting records on virtually everyone, but in fact it doesn't cover records for most cell phones. And why is that? If you scroll down in the story a little bit, it is because the cell phones, many cell phones, now have location data. So that location data is attached to the metadata of the phone calls on cell phones. And the NSA apparently isn't legally allowed to collect the location data. I'd like to hear from Snowden whether this is right or not. I don't know if there's going to be a story from The Guardian UK that will come out and tell us yes or no, this is right. I, mean, I thought it was virtually all of them, and I thought that they did sometimes collect location data. But if location data is a new variable that the government doesn't have the authority to collect, and technologically it is attached to the rest of the metadata, so much the better for us. And it makes me think that maybe I should go ahead and turn that cell phone on. No, or... Maybe this is a ploy to get us to all turn the location data on all the time so that they can track us everywhere. That's the skeptic. That's the skeptic version of this. Robert NYC in the chat room here says that why does he feel like this is a knee-jerk CYA story by the administration? No, I, I, I agree, Robert. And the reason I agree is because we heard Obama speak about his so-called revisions to the bulk data collection program. That speech, I mean, you remember I analyzed it in gory detail, and he didn't even get to the point, which was the modifications that he was going to be making to the NSA's programs until well towards the end of the speech. And then he tried to make it seem like he was going to be drastically modifying what he's doing, when in fact all he did was ask a bunch of people to study about how to square the circle. He wants to have the same capabilities as having all of this bulk metadata at his fingertips. But, he says, there's problems if the government continues to collect it, there's problems if the individual phone companies collect it, and there's a problem if a supposedly un, you know, unbiased third party collects all this data from the phone companies on behalf of the government. All of these things pose problems, but... We still want all the same capabilities as if we had our toys. Go figure it out. And he tells these people, go square the circle, report back to me, and then we'll make any modifications as necessary. That's what he said in his speech. Right now, they're still collecting all the data. So, yeah, I feel like the Wall Street Journal is carrying water for him and putting this out there to say, oh, you know, only 20%. Now, suppose it's only 20%. Suppose that's really true. It doesn't matter. The government is not, is not justified in collecting any metadata on anybody without probable cause, without particularized suspicion. They say, oh, it's just metadata. Metadata tells a lot about a person. I mean, obviously, it depends what type of metadata it is. But, I mean, if you're calling a particular plastic surgeon. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking that the story that shot into my mind, unfortunately, was Bruce Jenner, poor Bruce Jenner, has been getting some reduce his Adam's apple size surgery. He's looking very feminine. And 
the paparazzi is following him mercilessly, right? So if they trace his phone call and he's calling these particular surgeons, suppose he's calling a sex change surgeon or something. I, I don't know that he is. I'm just speculating. But, but there are certain people whose specialty, and if you're calling them, are going to be very revealing about what you're doing in your personal life. Metadata, it's just metadata, right? Just just metadata. Repeated calls to, to somebody like that where it really said something about what you might do in, be doing in your personal life, that's huge. So they are not justified. They need to have some sort of level of significant cause. They need particularized suspicion in order to be justified in collecting personal data about us. So, you know, it's only 20%. The thing that the story reminded me of is the uh, guy on Red Eye, I mean, not, not Red Eye, but on The Five, Bob Beckel. Bob Beckel was talking about Obamacare early on when it was first coming into effect. They're saying, oh, you know, only thousands of people, some thousands of people were losing their insurance plans. And he was basically saying, oh, you know, thousands of people, I think it was hundreds of thousands, were losing their insurance plans. Oh, well, in the grand scheme of things, it's no big deal. I mean, imagine you're one of those thousands who has lost their insurance plan. And here's Bob Beckel just saying, no, nah, no big deal. So imagine you're one of the 20%. Eh, it's only 20%. No, you shouldn't worry about it. And maybe, you know, every, they want everybody just to kind of sleep, go to sleep and think, well, I'm maybe, you know, I've got an 80% chance that my data is not being collected. So isn't that cool? Anyway. Yeah, I do. I feel like they're carrying water for the NSA. <laughs> Robert NYC in the chat room says that Bruce Jenner should skip the Wheaties and go for a nice steak. <sighs> I hope you're not implying some sort of cause and effect relationship because I don't think it's that. <laughs> so sad. So sad. Anyway, that's the privacy-related story for the first hour. You all well know my view on this. The third-party doctrine that makes all this collection legal needs to go away, but we'll talk more about that in the next hour. The next big headlines for today, and I don't know why these making big headlines, because jobs numbers keep being revised in the later months, and yet the Wall Street Journal and other news outlets make a big deal out of the jobs numbers and try to prognosticate and figure out what it means and analyze and compare to prior months. But then in a month from now, they're going to revise this and then think something else. So I, I get very frustrated with this stuff. But it says, United States added 113,000 jobs in January. This is the latest worrying sign on growth. They're saying that the labor market is just plodding along. It's not growing as much. But, you know, when you actually look at the numbers that they're talking about in the story, some of the differences that they talk about are not even statistically significant in my view. So, for example, they say that the unemployment rate fell to 6.6% from 6.7%. Now, did it really fall? The numbers are going to be revised. It's so close to what it was last month. So why would you even say that it fell? It I mean, obviously, they're putting out whatever numbers that they can, but 
it just it just doesn't make any sense to get that excited about. And then they talk about what was the expectation. Well, the expectation was that there was going to be a gain of 189,000 jobs. That's what economists expected. But instead, it was 113,000. But then they said they expected that 189,000 jobs and a 6.6 rate. We got the rate, but different number on the jobs. How does that happen? It's very, very confusing to me how you can have you know, the, the discrepancy in the expectation numbers, but the jobless rate is exactly what they expected. Last year, supposedly the average per month between August and November was 200,000 jobs. But one thing we talked about on this show that I always thought is that, yes, they hire a lot in the months leading up to Christmas. And then, of course, they're not going to hire as much after. That seems pretty obvious. And in fact, if you go later down into, you know, scroll later down into the story when they talk about retail jobs. Retail jobs are down, as far as I remember from looking at these numbers earlier today. Um, manufacturing payrolls are up. Leisure and hospitality, uh, hospitality sec- uh, sector also went up. Construction payrolls grew. I guess it maybe isn't quite as cold, although it's quite cold out there for some of you. But retail employment fell by 13%. I don't see that this is that surprising given that the holiday hiring season is over. Employment at all levels of government fell. That's good news. Fell by 29,000 in January. Employment at all levels of government. Anytime you can get the percentage of people working for government down, I am in favor of that. Now, it says the number of Americans who were unemployed for 27 weeks or longer fell by 232,000 in January. And it, but then it says that the latest data could partially reflect the fact that more than 1 million Americans lost extended federal unemployment benefits at the end of December. To receive those payments, you have to actively look for work, and therefore you're counted as part of the labor force. So the drop in the long-term unemployed might indicate that some have stopped looking. The interesting thing, though, is that in the numbers earlier in the article, when they're talking about the percentage in the labor force, they don't mention a change about this. So here they're speculating, and I think it's probably right, that a lot of people just stop looking for work. Why? Because they don't have to anymore, because they don't have a check that's being promised to them if they continue to pretend, at least, that they're looking for work. It's a mess. It's a complete mess. Oh, people are giving hugs in the chat room because Matt was late. Matt, welcome to the show. What you're missing so far were all the exciting announcements about the show. So you're going to have to listen to the podcast later, Matt, and catch up with everybody else because there were a lot of really cool things that you missed. Then they talk about this. They say a broader measure of unemployment is something that includes people working part-time who want full-time jobs and people who are marginally attached to the labor force. This stood at 12.7% in January. I count myself as among that. I've got a variety of part-time things that I'm doing and not one single full-time job right now. So I'm, I guess, one of those people that messes up all the employment numbers. So here's the thing, the soft unemployment numbers, right? And then right next to that at the Wall Street Journal, you find the story that I've linked to next at my blog at DontLetItGo.com, which is that U.S. stocks rise. In what kind of perverted world do the stocks rise in reaction to soft job numbers? 
numbers that make people worry about whether growth is on the right track. The kind of world in which everybody, including the people who are in the stock market, are ex- the Fed to jump in. Right? Says U.S. stocks extend gains. That's the revised headline now. Speculation mounts on slower taper by the Fed. Remember that the Fed was pumping into the economy a lot of hot air every month to the tune of, what, $80 billion per month? And then it's gone down, I guess, to $65 billion, and they were tapering it at $10 billion a month. So when these job numbers come out, and people get worried about what it means in terms of growth, then they get excited because they say, well, the Fed's going to look at this, and then they're going to say, maybe we're going to have to taper the stimulus even slower. That's what they get excited about. That's what causes a stock rally in this country. Not productivity, not good numbers from corporations in terms of creating wealth, In fact, one of the stories that I have for today is about Apple. Apple's one of my favorite companies. And Apple has found that its stock price decreased upon news that the sales for the iPhone weren't that good. Now, I'm looking for the story here, and I'm wondering if it actually made it onto my blog. Hmm, I'm not even sure that it made it here on my blog. This is very sad. Apple is buying up stock. I'm going to have to go over to the Wall Street Journal and do it the old-fashioned way. WallStreetJournal.com. Story better still be there. I'm not sure because the news is constantly changing. Yeah, here it is. Apple boosts stock buybacks. This is the story that I had intended to share at my blog and that I read earlier today and yet didn't link to somehow. Brain, brain, brain. Okay. So what happened was the decline in shares was 8% as of January 28th. That was the day after it reported lower iPhone sales. And what Tim Cook at the head of Apple has done is initiated a buyback of more than $40 billion worth of its shares over the last 12 months. And what it means to them, they say, look, we are betting on Apple. This is a quote from Tim Cook. He says, quote, it means that we are betting on Apple. It means that we are really confident on what we were doing and what we plan to do, end quote. And maybe you've heard me before. I can't remember if I discussed it here or when I was guest hosting for Tammy Bruce, but Apple has been buying up television infrastructure, television internet infrastructure, they uh, a lot of internet infrastructure so that they could push this content out on the web. People are speculating that they're about to make a big leap into television, which has been promised for several years if you read the Steve Jobs biographical material that was released when he died. I, I read about this, that they had plans for television. That was one of the markets. And I would love to see them make the Apple TV product more powerful Maybe a smart TV. I don't know if I'm that interested in that, but I would love to see Apple TV increase its offerings and become a real alternative to cable television. And it looks like Apple is betting on the fact that they're going to succeed with that. So they've been purchasing back these shares. And um, the other thing that they've been doing is they've been hiring people who have expertise in television and in Internet television in particular. So a lot a lot of speculation. Elliot in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio says he loves Apple TV. I have a couple qualms with it. So, for example, if you 
do the home sharing option where you can play your music library over the Apple TV and then therefore through your home entertainment system. It seems to lose the pairing capability frequently, almost every day. You have to go and again tell Apple iTunes in your computer to go ahead and do the home sharing. It it uh, falls off all the time. And that's kind of annoying because you would like to be able to access your vast library. If you have a vast music library, you'd like to be able to access it regularly and conveniently. So I'd like that bug to go away. But otherwise, I've been really happy with it. There are some things that I wish would provide more of a true alternative to cable. So for example, if you'd like to watch NBA, you can do the NBA app. But that app has a lot of blackout restrictions so that it's really not an alternative to watching basketball on cable television. So uh, there's that as well. Matt and Elliot in the chat room are informing me. They're, they're not saying it this way. They're being very nice about it. But they're saying that probably I've done something wrong with my Apple TV because Matt says that his stays locked in all the time. And Elliot says, yeah, he's never had an issue with it. Carrie in the chat room says he's got a delayed comment here because we were talking about the NSA story about the NSA collecting only 20% of phone metadata. He asks, would Snowden have acted if the phone metadata only included 20% of Americans? I would hope so. And the principle is the same. And there's still many, 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 many people affected. Again, you know, imagine you're one of the 20%. Oh, well, you're just one of the 20% that they were able to. And, and of course, the NSA says that they want to collect more. So all they're going to need is Obama to pull out his pen and his phone or whatever and make it legal for the government to collect the location data. I mean, it's just metadata. You're probably out in public. I don't know. Maybe you're not out in public. Maybe you're at your house. But I, I think he definitely should have done it. What The only calculation that he might have made is he might have said, well, is he going to be able to succeed in getting Americans upset about it? I think he'd be optimistic like I am. I think he'd be optimistic like I am. I'm optimistic that you could still make the case to the American people that if you're playing the lottery each time you use your phone, who knows? And how do you know whether you're one of the... 20% that's being traced or not. I mean, I personally, you know, every time, get on the phone, hi, NSA, here at the show. We like to welcome the NSA to the show and hope that they enjoy it. Maybe they'll call in and have a little conversation with me about what they do. You know, again, Snowden portrayed the people he worked with at the NSA as generally good people who thought they were doing the right thing. And I think he also thinks that many of them have the same qualms that he had about their job, but they feel stuck for whatever reason, they don't feel like they can make the decisions that he made. They've got families they're supporting. They're stuck here. <laughs> Matt in the chat room says he just pretends that the NSA is in the room with them all the time. We should just do that. We should all just pretend that the NSA is in the room with us all the time. That's very depressing. That's very depressing. And even if you're not, quote, doing anything wrong. I mean, I've talked about this before. It it is stifling. It, it affects your thought process. You're always checking yourself as to, hmm, I wonder if I could get, if whatever it is that I'm thinking or saying could be misinterpreted. You guys all know my co-host, Bosch Faustin, who is normally here. I'm, I'm, you know, missing him, of course, now. It's fun to go back and forth with him. But there's a lot of times that 
he says things, and I mean, he doesn't, you know, obviously mean to stir up anything bad or do anything bad, but he says things, and I say, well, that could be misinterpreted by the government. They could get on you. I'm worried about these things, and the, you know, it, it, I mean, let's talk to Lidar Levison in the next hour how difficult it is once the government has decided that it's got some kind of case against you, how much time and stress and energy and money is spent dealing with that stuff, right? Peter Schiff, I mean, Peter Schiff's been sort of in the internet news this week. There's been a lot of links passed around about Peter Schiff being misrepresented and being lied to by the daily show he was on the daily show and apparently they took his answers out of context and made him look stupid or like he was saying things that he didn't believe in and they had promised him ahead of time he wasn't going to do that and they say well are you going to sue are you going to sue and he said i don't want to sue it's the time and the effort and the stress it's much better just to tell your story out there to the world and let people know that the daily show lies that they misrepresent their guests, that they take their guests out of context, that they do a four-hour interview in order to give a segment, you know, publish a segment of about two to four minutes. And then they, they did the same thing to Bosch Faustin. They interviewed him for, it was at least well over two hours. I, I went with him and, and saw what was going on. And then I think the whole segment was about three minutes and they took him out of context. Nonetheless, are you going to sue them for that? You've signed a release, you know, and this is all stuff that Peter Schiff mentioned as well. But the biggest thing is that court proceedings take time, energy, money, and cause a lot of stress. And if the government is against you, in particular, the government has an unlimited deepest pocket ever, namely the American taxpayer, and they'll use all that money and they'll go after you. So you definitely don't want to get in trouble. And you are. You're going to censor yourself maybe a little bit here and there. Of course, we don't have laws in this country yet that say if you, in the privacy of your own home, disparage Barack Obama to your family, that somehow you're going to be brought up on charges. That's the kind of stuff that comes out of Nazi Germany. But, yeah, we don't have that here yet. Not yet. Anyway, so that that's my one diatribe rant, which is that this – Economy news is so counterintuitive. The jobs data is soft. The stocks rise because they're just counting on the Fed to keep pumping more money into the economy at a faster rate than they were going to otherwise. It is so perverse. We need to get back to a situation in which the markets are primarily or wholly responsive, uh, responsive to actual production news actual creation of wealth, innovation. These are the things that should move the stock market. It shouldn't be speculation as to whether the government is going to point its gun one way versus the other, which is what it's doing. When the Fed is pumping money into the economy, they are stealing money from either us or future generations. Just as if they're pointing a gun to you and saying, empty your pockets. They are doing that when they're doing this. And so it is so perverse that that's what makes the stock market rise and fall these days is speculation as to where the government is going to point its gun next. If you think the Republicans are going to help us in any way, shape, or form, don't hold your breath. Next headline is that the debt ceiling endgame nears, but nothing is certain. 
if you remember, I mean, again, this is so perverse. You just can't even believe that you are discussing this as actual news. You might as, This should be the onion. This definitely should be the onion. And there's been a lot of funny onion stuff lately, by the way. And, and Bosch had pointed out that one hopeful sign in the onion is that they are increasingly making fun of libertarians. And I think that shows that libertarians are more and more influential in the world. And I think that's generally a good sign, although some libertarians are crazy. I disagree with some of them. But I myself, being influenced by Ayn Rand, thinks that, you know, other things being equal, the fact that libertarian arguments are starting to get more play and be more influential to most people means that most people are fed up with the size and scope of government. I take it as a proxy for that, and I take it, therefore, as a good sign. But this should be out of the onion right here. We have not had an actual debt ceiling for months now. If you remember, the last budget deal suspended the debt ceiling for five months. Five months. The five-month suspension of the debt ceiling ends today, and it says that House Republican and Democratic leaders are sending signals that they're looking for a quick escape hatch to avoid another prolonged fight. Heaven forbid that you should fight for the future of this country, for not digging us deeper and deeper and deeper into debt, for not spending as much money as they've spent. Heaven forbid you should do that. Heaven forbid that the House should actually exercise its power of the purse and put a stop to this madness. Oh, don't shut down the government. That would be so horrible. I love when they shut down the government because it shows people that the world doesn't stop turning and that production doesn't stop, et cetera, just because they shut down the government. The one thing that does stop is the kind of garbage that we're waiting on, for instance, Amazon. Amazon is waiting for the FAA to get off its butt and write those regulations about the drone delivery. So is a microbrewer that I talked about at my blog, News Sandwich. Just write the dang regulations so that people can get off and start making some money on the drone technology. But but no, no, not till 2015, you know. We have to have a few coffee breaks and smoke some cigarettes. And now, of course, we have to smoke cigarettes outside so the cigarette breaks take longer. And they don't sell cigarettes at CVS anymore, so it takes even longer to get this, you know. Yeah, we we got to write those regulations. So mostly production doesn't stop unless the government's telling you it must stop. It can't happen without them. But most things go on, and and it's not nearly as painful as you expect. But no, don't tell John Boehner that. John Boehner doesn't want to have a shutdown. And it says, uh, this article at the Wall Street Journal says that Boehner has told Republicans publicly and privately he doesn't think they can round up the 218 votes to pass a debt ceiling bill. However, Representative Steny Hoyer from Maryland said Thursday that he could deliver 180 Democrats so long as they have a bill that either raises or suspends the debt ceiling. So the only bill it seems that he's going to be able to pass is going to be a debt ceiling bill that either raises or suspends the debt ceiling. That's what Boehner's going to be able to do. So he's going to need only 20, it says that Boehner's going to need only 20% of his caucus to pass the bill. Translation, it's going to happen. They're going to either raise or further suspend the debt ceiling. That is scary. I mean, it used to be we had a certain number 
an actual number. Now, whether the numbers, I mean, they massage data so much, but a number at least seemed to be some constraint on Obama such that he was banging up against it and really upset that they weren't passing an increase to the debt ceiling. So it seems to be doing some good to have an actual number as a debt ceiling. But we've been existing without without any ceiling at all. I don't even know what the debt is. I'm scared to look. If somebody in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio wants to post it and tell me what the debt is right now without this debt ceiling. But what are they going to do? They're either going to further suspend it or they're probably going to raise it. That's what we're going to get from Boehner, who just basically rolls over and plays dead. Why? Because, oh, we couldn't shut down the government. We couldn't actually exercise the power and you know he doesn't want to be president anyway as he said on Leno he doesn't want to give up his golf and drinking wine and probably going to the tanning saloon as Bosch Faustin likes to call it these are important things you know this idea of actually helping to save the country by stopping this horrible out of control spending yeah. no I don't think so so what does it say This is what the Wall Street Journal predicts. It says the House Republicans will likely float several different policy or budget proposals in order to gauge interest from their members over the next few days. If a consensus doesn't gel, House Republicans could move as soon as next week to pass a bill that suspends the debt ceiling until, until guess when? After November. Of course, you knew that was coming, right? After November, after the elections. Ah, let's not have... Any contentious politics until after the elections, let's just go about pretending that we all want the same things, we all want to help the poor, and we all want to make sure that we get all of the supposed benefits of Obamacare without all of the harms, and you know, we've got the best plan for that, but it's just a little bit different than my colleague over there, and oh, we're all friendly and wonderful, but you know, after the November elections, then, then we'll really show some teeth, right? You know it's not true. After the November elections, what are they going to do? They're going to roll over for some other reason that has to do with keeping their power. It says they could also send a few trial balloons over to the Senate, connecting a debt ceiling increase with some sort of policy or budget change that might splinter Democrats. If you recall, McConnell, Mitch McConnell, was quoted as saying that he thinks that there should be something attached to the next debt agreement or spending agreement that they do, there should be something there. You know, we owe it to the American people. There should be something there. He didn't say that there would be, that he committed to making sure that there would be. Oh, yeah, you know, it should be. That's so easy. It's so cheap to say that it could be. But, you know. Anyway, we're going to have to see what the Democrats do as well. But it looks like it's not going to be good. It says financial markets are not paying much attention to the process. Yeah, they're just waiting for the Fed to keep pumping the money. They're not paying attention to how deep our government is going into debt and paying attention to the fact that at some point it's actually got to stop. Oh no, this is funny. I've got a link in the chat room. Thank you, Robert NYC, for giving us this link. Under Obama, the U.S. debt has increased 6.666 trillion. Does that creep you out? 
And this is published February 7th. It's a strange coincidence about our debt, if you ask me. According to CNS News, almost a year to the day from President Obama's inauguration, the U.S. debt has increased 6.666 trillion. Well, at least it's four sixes and not three sixes, but it's still pretty revulsifying and disgusting. I remember seeing a graphic that was being passed around Facebook, and it said that you know, let's show how long it takes to accumulate this much in debt, this $6.666 trillion. And it was 237 years, I believe, you know, from the founding of the country all the way up to today or whenever it started accumulating debt. And then basically the five years of Barack Obama. So 237 years, same amount of debt accumulated as five years of Barack Obama. Matt in the chat room says that in five years, it's going to be $22 trillion if we keep spending as we do. But no, the financial markets aren't paying attention to that. Instead, it's all on what they think the Fed is going to do next. Now, probably maybe Jonathan Honig would tell me that there's some long-term pricing of what's going to happen. There's In the back of people's minds, in the back of investors' minds, there's some long-term recognition. But I, you know, you don't see it, and that's not what's being reported. They're reporting the stocks are going up and down with speculations as to how much money the Fed is going to pump in next month. Rest of the stuff now. Elliot in the chat room says, but it's okay, guys. We'll just mint a trillion-dollar coin and poof, problem solved. Maybe what they'll do is they will just nationalize a trillion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Maybe that's their idea. Or the one that I've heard about, again, thanks to Bosch for telling me about this, is um, Elizabeth Warren. She keeps arguing that they should just nationalize our 401ks. Problem solved, right? Problem solved, no problem. Yeah. Just keep feeding off the carcass until there's nothing there. Matt says, yeah, the debt problem is easy to solve. The next problem is worse. The wheelbarrows of cash to buy bread problem. Elliot says he loves Bitcoin. I have done very little of looking into it. I saw some story today about how Bitcoin was a little bit down or something. Not everything is smooth in Bitcoin. And I don't know whether that has to do with government speculation. Again, is the government going to point its gun at Bitcoin? That's what the speculation is about. Why can't all the market prices, why can't they just reflect real things having to do with production and the creation of value and wealth just doesn't seem to be happening. But let's go ahead and switch gears here to the next horror, which is Obamacare. This next story written by Byron York over at the Washington Examiner. Number of Obamacare signups is greatly inflated. That's a big surprise, right? says, Democrats from President Obama on down have been touting Obamacare sign-up numbers. Even after the system's disastrous rollout, they like to point out, roughly 3 million people have signed up for private insurance, while 6.3 million have signed up for Medicaid. I'm sighing because the last time I looked at those numbers, and it wasn't that long ago, the number was 3.9 million So the short time ago that I looked at the number and it was 3.9 million to now, we have over 2 million more signing up for Medicaid. Again, this is funneling people into a system that is already single-payer medicine. 
Medicaid. So 3 million signed up for private insurance, 6.3 for Medicaid. Here's the quote, already because of the Affordable Care Act, more than 9 million Americans have signed up for private health insurance or Medicaid coverage, Obama said in the State of the Union. (laughs) Don't you love how he lumps them together? I'm so glad I didn't watch that speech. I I probably would have exploded a a vessel, a blood vessel in my brain or something. So he lumps it together. And the 9 million makes it look attractive, like the private health insurance market is actually going to survive or something. No. Anyway, it says the number's a little larger now since the figures are a few weeks old, but there is strong new evidence to suggest the administration's claims are grossly exaggerated and deeply misleading. Obamacare is not doing nearly as well as the president wants you to believe. First, they say Medicaid. This week, the health consulting firm Avalir, which I hadn't heard of before, found that only 1 to 2 million of the 6.3 million who signed up for Medicaid were new enrollees brought into the program by Obamacare. Now, this is that old story about how some of this is due to the expansion and some of this is just due to the fact that people who were already eligible for Medicaid are now signing up. And why is that? Because when you go to these government websites, when you go to healthcare.gov or whatever your state's equivalent is, when you go there, one of the things it always does is enter your income data and find out whether you're eligible for subsidies. And then people put their income data in, and their income data is very depressing because we're in a horrible job market right now. And then they find out, wow, I was already eligible for Medicaid in my state. So the additional enrollees in the Medicaid are not technically due to Obamacare in the sense of it's the Obamacare expansion, but I still credit Obamacare for it because, first of all, a lot of these people lost their private health insurance and they're probably going there. And then all of these websites are geared towards getting you to apply for subsidies. This whole government is geared towards that. One of the stories that I didn't put at my blog today, don'tletitgo.com, it was a good one that Bosch sent me, but I guess I should have uh, given this context, but Michelle Obama telling high school students, make sure to apply for federal financial aid. Don't leave any money on the table. She wants kids starting in high school to get roped into taking aid from the government, you know, to go to college in their case. But the sooner they can get you receiving some sort of federal government benefit, the better in their eyes. And this is what the whole Obamacare program is doing. A lot of the evil that it's been doing is getting people into straight into single payer. I would say the people who are signing up for Obamacare plans, so to speak, that is a detour. A lot of us are going to end up eventually in a single payer program if we don't turn around drastically and do something very, very different. I want to see what happens in the elections this year to see if we have hope of avoiding socialized medicine. But this, I mean, to me, this is depressing. Last time I saw, it was 3.9 million total enrollees on Medicaid, and that was about 1.9 million because of the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. Now we've got a whole lot more signing on to Medicaid, and it is because of Obamacare, even if it's not due to the expansion. They say the rest of the people would have signed up irrespective of Obamacare. And I just don't think that's true. Again, you go to the websites, and again, I farm this out to Vodka Pundit. Vodka Pundit, I was very happy to let him explore healthcare.gov on my behalf because 
that website is just full of who knows what yucky viruses and everything. But he went there and saw that they were constantly asking him, put in your income data, see if you're eligible for a subsidy. And when you put that in, and if your income is low enough, boom, you're going to be told that you could get Medicaid. And a lot of people figure, why not take it? Why not take it? Robert NYC in the chat room says, yes, we're quickly moving to a system of fascist medicine. Yeah. I mean, what's going to happen? The government is paying the bills. It's going to subsidize insurance companies soon because the insurance companies, the private insurance companies, are not going to get the enrollments that they were promised and that they counted on, that they calculated all of their profit margins based on. So they're going to need subsidies. Once they're subsidized, then the government takes more control over them. The government's already telling what you know the doctors should do. Matt in the chat room says that he feels like someone dear has died. Yeah. This is really sad. This is very sad. Sorry for your uh, drop there. But anyway, the point is is that the numbers are being exaggerated, but I think the numbers are horrific as they are. The numbers that they would like to exaggerate and that Obama tried to exaggerate is he tried to group together the ones who signed up for private insurance and for Medicaid. He doesn't want to let the country know all the true numbers about who's signing up for Medicaid. In some contexts, he likes to brag about it because he says, look, we got all these people insured. But in other contexts, he knows. He knows that people like you and me are going to infer from these Medicaid numbers that we are on the fast track to single payer and that this is actually bad news, not good news. Next story I'm glad to tell you is from Tammy Bruce. Tammy Bruce, who has allowed me and Bosch to guest host recently, and I gather we're going to be doing it again. I'm very happy to step in for her. She has been writing a weekly column for the Washington Times, and hers this week, the headline is, Obamacare isn't a train wreck, it's a cancer. And the subhead says, put the president's health care law out of our misery. Not out of its misery, out of our misery. She says, when a locomotive crashes, it stops. Obamacare, on the other hand, just keeps on going like a cancer that's ignored, perpetuating itself and destroying everything in its path. While we thought the Health Care Act was a train wreck, it's more like a cancer. And then she says, uh, you know, with all the anti-Obamacare rhetoric coming out of the Republican leadership, they still funded it for another year. And, you know, she says, that's like thinking that you can trash talk your cancer into remission while smoking three packs a day, putting off that pesky surgery to remove the, tu- the tumor until later. Genius. And that's the whole thing. They basically want it to die on its own, but it's not going to die on its own because, again, I think one of the primary things that it's doing is that it's getting a lot of people signed up for government subsidies of one kind or another and... By the time the Republicans ever get around to saying, okay, now everything's safe. This election or that election has passed. Who knows what they're waiting for? Is it 2014 election? Maybe it's a 2016 election. Oh, well, 2016, they want to run for re-election in 2020, so you wouldn't want to do anything about Obamacare then. It's going to be way too late. It's going to be way too late to do anything about it. She says, in the normal world... Obamacare, you know, with all of, and she's talking about everything, the thing that you can keep your plan, you can keep your doctor, all of this is a fraud. She says, in the normal world, this would be called fraud. 
In Obama's America, it's called a snag. And on a national scale, the Obama regime labels it basically shut up Fox News. And out of disclosure, Tammy Bruce is a commentator for Fox News, but Fox News is probably the only major news source that actually gives you some of the truth about Obamacare, about the IRS, about Benghazi, and all those other little pesky scandals that Obama doesn't want to be confronted about. So kudos to Tammy Bruce for identifying that, yeah, this is this is cancer and that we really should get rid of it. We should eradicate it now. You can you know, go back and draw a parallel to Steve Jobs. Remember Steve Jobs, when he had his cancer, for a while he did not want to have the surgery. He didn't want to have an invasive surgery on his body. If you've identified a cancer in your body and it is surgically removable in even a semi-safe procedure, get it out. Get it out. And Similarly, I agree with Tammy. It's irresponsible of the Republicans to continue to fund Obamacare, to talk, you know, it's the law of the land. It's not the law of the land. It's a law that Obama keeps rewriting with his pen and his phone. So, no. What are the Republicans up to? You know, I don't know. We've got Cantor, who's maybe going to be the next Speaker of the House, and he's just as hopeless as Boehner. The headline over at talkradionews.com is that Cantor's big business agenda sparks a primary challenge. What is it that people are challenging him about? It's about immigration. That's what it's about. Um, Supposedly, the Republican plan to grant amnesty is something that is in the interest of so-called big business, etc. So the thing that we're supposed to not like Cantor for is the immigration issue. I'm sorry. Immigration is way down my list. You know, again, my position on immigration is we should have a proper open immigration policy. I am skeptical that any bill that's going to be brought forward and agreed upon by today's Republican leadership and Democrats, that any bill like that is going to move us towards an honest, open immigration policy. Instead, I expect any immigration bill that these guys pass to be filled of pork and crony subsidies for people who are the members of the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable and the blah, blah, blah. I don't expect it to be a good bill. Now, you know, prove me wrong, but I certainly don't think that Cantor should be primaried based on immigration. That's the least of it. The most of it is that he keeps sending us down the road of big government, government that's doing things that it shouldn't be doing, it should be restricted to the protection of our individual rights. And that's just not what our government has been about. Now, I have a couple more stories that I'd like to get to in the last couple minutes here before our next hour. Again, I'm being the giddy schoolgirl because I get to interview Ladar Ledison in a few minutes and talk about email technology and how it does or doesn't protect your privacy and about the legal battle that he has had keeping his encryption keys from the government, etc. This is all going to be geek talk in the next hour. But let's get through a couple more stories first. And one is an op-ed, and it's about philanthropy. James Pearson over at the Wall Street Journal has an op-ed, and it's entitled, What Bill Gates Won't Tell You About Giving Money. 
what Bill Gates won't tell you about giving money. And they talk about Robert Wilson, who was a philanthropist. He gave away $800 million during his life, and then he ended up committing suicide a few weeks ago. And he was this philanthropist. Apparently, Bill Gates had been putting pressure on Wilson to sign the giving pledge. Now, I don't know if this is the reason for his suicide, but the giving pledge of Bill Gates is a commitment by wealthy individuals to give away more than half of their assets to charity. And Gates has written that he wants to make it more common for people to consider their philanthropic plans at a much younger age. And Wilson actually declined this. He says, when I talk to young people who seem destined for a great success, he says, I tell them to forget about charities and giving. Concentrate on your family and getting rich. He said, which I found this very hard work to do. He says, I personally and the world at large are very glad you were more interested in computer software than the underprivileged when you were young. People who do not make money will never become philanthropists. When, when rich people reach 50 and are beginning to slow down is the time to begin engaging them in philanthropy, end quote. And he says Wilson doesn't care whether his giving made him popular. He says it's becoming harder and harder for a philanthropist to take the kind of stand that he did. There's all the pressure being placed on them, etc. So um, he says there's a few things that people who are starting out in philanthropy might want to keep in mind, and these are from Pearson himself. He says if it comes to donating, don't think that you're giving back. You're not giving back. Instead, what you're doing is you are just giving money that you can afford. He says you haven't taken anything in the first place. The vast majority of Americans who become wealthy have not done so by exploiting the poor. Now, if you're one of these cronies who's been propped up by people in Washington, it's a different story. But he says the vast majority of those who become wealthy are not that way. Uh, he says find a cause that interests you, learn more about it, and then give to them. And he says think about the long term as well. You have to measure the results of your giving. Does it actually produce the results that you expect? And he says it's your money, not public money. Many advocates say that because of the charitable tax deduction, government has a right to direct the donations to politically favored causes. But he says, no, remember that it is your money you direct to the causes that you believe in. Uh, find people you trust to help give away your money. So there are people that you could trust and then maybe spend less time doing it and more time doing the things that you love. Spend your time with your you know, your uh, productive activities with your family and friends, etc. People in the chat room are talking about our depressing Repo uh, Republicans and Democrats there. Another story that I want to talk about, and I'm going to do it in two minutes here, which is just another defense of the Common Core. There's a panelist at a conference at the Center for American Progress Forum defending Common Core on the grounds that the children belong to all of us, that basically we should all have a say in what the children are taught. You don't have, you know, the right to educate your own children. The children belong to everybody. It's not that they're your children. They're everyone's children. We've heard this before. Who is that anchor on MSNBC who said essentially the same thing? But there was one thing I was going to tell you about, which in my own experience contradicts the Common Core. One of the substantive premises of the Common Core is that they should get away from fictional works 
and Melinda Harris Perry, Carrie says here in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, Melinda Harris Perry said the same thing that basically the you know kids belong to everybody. They're not your kids. They're the country's kids. And one of the things the Common Core wants to do is to take you away from fiction. And recently I've had occasion because I was watching a, a, a family infant and the infant was really into this Super Y show on PBS. And the premise of Super Y, a PBS show, right, government funded, the premise is that you can learn from fiction. The little characters, they have a problem, and then they say, when we have a problem, we look in a book. And then they go into the book, and, I mean, you know, Sleeping Beauty and all the standard fictional stories that we knew from our childhood, they're represented in this uh, series, and they only go into one little element. But the premise is that there's a parallel problem in the fictional book, you can read the fictional book, think about the problem in the book, and apply what you learn to your own life. You can actually learn about these things. So, you know, Common Core is wrong in its basic premise that the federal government should be dictating. It's wrong in its content. And I just wanted to give you another example of that that you can go check out for yourself. So it's the top of the hour. You're listening to Don't Let It Go Unheard. This is Amy Peekoff, and I am currently awaiting the phone call into the studio of Ladar Levison. I'm going to go ahead and see if I can find out on Facebook whether the particular call that I've got waiting there is him or not. Ah, this is probably him. So I'm going to go ahead and try it and see if I'm right. Hi, is this Ladar? Yeah, hello. Hello. Hi. Thanks for calling in and sharing some time with us today, Ladar. Well, thank you for having me. So for those who don't know, which I can't imagine why you'd be tuning in right now, but Ladar Levison is the founder of LavaBit. LavaBit was reportedly, and I guess you're probably not allowed to confirm one way or the other, but everyone in the media has been saying that LavaBit was Snowden's email service provider and that at a certain point last year, that became very interesting to the federal government, who started requesting information about Snowden's email account from you. And providing that information turned out to be a bit of a, a challenge, and, and especially providing it to the government in the form that they wanted it. And so you guys went back and forth for quite a while. And eventually the government got kind of nasty and demanded your encryption keys. Can you explain kind of what happens there? What's the meaning of them demanding your encryption keys? Why did they do this? Um, well, it's hard for me to put words in the mouths of the government agents, but the assumption was that, well, well for starters, the only way that they could collect the information that they wanted themselves um, was if they had my encryption key and could therefore masquerade as LavaBit on the Internet mm-hmm. and intercept all of the incoming connections to my network. Um, they would decrypt the connections, um, filter the information, and if they deemed it appropriate, record the information and then re-encrypt it and send it along its way to my servers. Um, a classic man-in-the-middle attack for anyone familiar with computer security. And that was the only way that they could intercept uh, what they're calling, quote, the login info. Now, 
technically speaking, they were only allowed to collect the login date and time, the logout date and time, and the originating IP. Um, the suspicion is that what they really wanted um, was the user's password mm. so that they could decrypt the contents that were stored on disk. Okay. Because basically when you offer to give them the information that they said that they were entitled to, they ended up rejecting that offer at a certain point, right? And, and here, here, here's a question. I, I like to think of myself as somewhat technologically astute, but a lot of the encryption technology is beyond me. And I think it's sad. I, I feel like I need to be able to understand it better because I feel that it really matters in terms of the law to you know, and, and the applicable law and what your duties are to turn information over the government, a lot of it depends on what the technical details are about the systems. So, so for example, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I looked at that document dump, and I don't know how that document dump came about, the one that's over at Wired. Mm-hmm. The, the Wired um, document dump. I believe you're dump referring has, to, the, to the documents that were unsealed on October 4th, thereabouts. Okay, so they were actually unsealed on October 4th, and that's how we're able to talk about all this now. Yeah, for almost two months um, I was giving interviews, but I couldn't tell anybody what they were actually demanding of me and why I had such a problem with it. All I could say for the longest time was that I wasn't trying to protect a single user. I was trying to protect the privacy of all my users. And you're absolutely right when you say, understanding how the encryption works is such a crucial piece of this entire puzzle because it changes everything. The way the system interacts with the law, the way the law interacts with people's privacy, um, it all kind of comes together. And I think encryption changes the game, so to speak. Um, right, right. And, and I, the way I, I can even say, you know, I six months ago, I was not nearly the expert on these issues that I am now. And that just goes to show how intricate they are. Well, see, and this is, this is the thing. You've had the technical side of it in your mind, and I've had the legal side of it in my mind, but you need to have both in order to get through an ordeal like this effectively, I think. So, for example, you know, I, I looked in that document up at Wired, and you always talk about in the interviews that I've listened to anyway, you always talk about June 28th, but I saw a June 10th demand in there for that record. was a no. subpoena for account information. Right. So effectively the first step in this process is always the subpoena for account information and they use that as a mechanism to try and identify the account holder and if it turns out to be if the account turns out to be belong to the person that they're investigating that's when they follow up with additional orders. Okay, I see it. So that one is not such a, a big deal. Although this, I can ask the same question about that as, as some of the later demands that they made upon you because if you remember, attached to these various legal documents, you know, that subpoena and then the later uh, the demand for basically the pen register type of data, there was a little affidavit attached to it, and you were supposed to fill out the affidavit and attach it to whatever information you gave back to them, right? Yeah. And, and, and part of the affidavit said 
you know, I, Ladar Levison, you're supposed to fill it out. Uh, I collect this as a normal part of my doing business. And my question for you is, did you actually collect the information that they said they wanted as a normal part of you doing business with LavaBit? You're bringing up a really interesting legal point. Um, now, are we referring to the subpoena, the June 10th subpoena? So the June 10th and subpoena, you say it's – yeah, there's an affidavit attached to it. And then if I can go ahead and go to my little Adobe reader here and, and scroll down to the next one, because Exhibit 1 is that, right? It's that June 10th. And then if we go down further and get to the next one, let me see if I can do this efficiently. Yeah, the, so the first one is just that they, um, they're ordering you to disclose records and other information described in Attachment A. And then you go to Attachment A, and it says that you want information about the customers or su subscribers of the account, you know, so-and-so. And it's, you know, addresses and long-distance telephone connection records, all kinds of records, a lot of, a lot of metadata and a lot of just account data about this person. And I don't know whether you collected all of that data as a normal part of you doing business okay, with your I people, right? that's what you were referring to. And mm -hmm. I did sign the affidavit, but you have to remember, I only turned over the information that I normally collect as part of my business, which was right. next to nothing. Right, right. So, for example, I had the username. I had the IP address that they created the account from because it's the only IP address I ever record. Okay. Um, and then... This particular instance, I had, it was a paid account, so I had the name and, you know, when the account was upgraded and, you know, the last few digits of the credit card number that was used to fund the account. Sure, but and then you might... that was pretty much you, it. I didn't have any addresses. I didn't have, you know, I, I knew when the account was created. I didn't have any telephone numbers. Um, I obviously didn't have any IMEI numbers, you know, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they use sort of a generic cookie cutter request for both ISPs and telephone companies. Right, right. And, and they, you know, they just say, okay, this is the thing that the statute allows us to demand, so we're just going to demand everything the statute lets us demand. But the thing that gets me about this is that they're demanding things of you as if it is something that you gather in the normal course of you doing business. And me as an attorney, the reason that they do this, right, and they want you to say that you collect this as a normal part of doing business is because well, the so-called – Right, right. The third-party doctrine – because one of the two yeah, criteria exactly. that, you know, makes a pet register device constitutional – Yep. It's the fact that it's only looking at information that's normally collected through the normal course of business. Exactly. Um, which is interesting when we advance to the June 28th order. Right. Because that was actually demanding information that I don't normally record. Right. Right. Now, and there is no affidavit for the June 28th order. Um, which no. Which is why you got me a little bit confused there. Right, um, right. I, 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 I think, see that. I see that, yes. And so, and so the idea the is that they yeah. – well, I was going to say that, that makes the pen register order basically invalid because the whole pen register statute 
was enacted after Smith versus Maryland on the strength of this third-party doctrine that I've talked to my audience about a million times. I think that thing's got to go. I think it's totally unconstitutional and wrong. And But the whole statute is enacted on that authority, so I think the pen register demand was invalid. Well, the two criteria that were laid out in Smith v. Maryland that basically were used to determine that a pen register device was not a, quote, search, was that you were sharing this information with a third party and therefore there was no reasonable expectation of privacy. Right. And two, it was only looking at information that was normally collected through the norm- in, during the normal course of business for billing purposes. Um, at least in my case, both of those criteria no longer hold. And mm-hmm. that's what I was alluding to earlier when I said cryptography changes the game. Cryptography creates a reasonable expectation of privacy. Users who are submitting their messages or logging into a server via an SSL connection expect it to be secure. Right. Secondly, at least in my particular case, and this is somewhat unusual for an email service provider, but I had an avowed privacy policy that explicitly stated I wouldn't be recording this information. Right. Right. And so, so both of the criteria laid out in Smith v. Maryland no longer hold. And I just think it's truly unfortunate that during the hearing a couple of weeks ago, time was spent focused on, you know, did I properly object to the orders um, when I didn't, you know, wasn't allowed to retain counsel um, exactly what were the orders ordering, did I comply with this or that, instead of focusing on this underlying legal principle. And and it really comes down to two legal principles. Um, One, you know, does the government have the necessary authority under the pen register statute or the Stored Communications Act to, to compel a business to turn over these SSL keys? And if you find that they do have the necessary authority, does such a requirement violate the Fourth Amendment? Because at least, you know, by the layman interpretation of Smith v. Maryland, if these right. are the two criteria that have to be met for it not to constitute a search, and both of those criteria are being violated, then it is a search, and it is sub- this information is subject to Fourth Amendment protection. Or at right. least Fourth Amendment protection in the case of all of the other users whose information would now have to be searched in order to locate the information on the suspect. Right, right. And for me, and I, you know, another time I can bore you with this hopefully, but I don't want to go into all of my legal analysis now, but I actually disagree with the entire reasonable expectation of privacy framework and think it's a bunch of garbage. But we could have that discussion another day because I, I want to hear more from you. But you know, with with this fact that you don't normally collect this, that the shame of it is that they were making an improper demand upon you, and they should have understood that they did not have the authority to ask for what they were asking for. Now, if they had come to you with a warrant for the installation of a pen register, I don't know what you could have said otherwise right because if well, they have a, a you know it's then then it's not an issue of whether you stored it yeah you may understand this better than i but 
I think what they did is they got it for the installation of the pen register, and their right. assumption was that they needed to collect the information themselves because I was not. But again, I, when I when I read that order, it was on a lower standard. The order was written on a lower standard. It's reasonably relevant or you know, some garbage language. It's not probable cause and particularized suspicion that is the standard for those orders. And they just treated this pen register order as if it's the same as any other pen register order. And then when you were having a hard time telling, you know, explaining to them, I guess, what, it, what you could and couldn't do and what it would require to give them what they wanted, I think they saw you as uncooperative and I think they, they did it unfairly because, I mean, what would you have to do? What would you have to do to be able to let them monitor in real time only the metadata from the one user without compromising the privacy of all of the other ones? I know I, that I you're, don't think you're it's technologically possible. Um, but see that in 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 the hearing in in the appellate hearing in the Fourth Circuit, I listened to the you know the 50 minute of audio that you posted. Thanks for posting that. I think your attorney said that it was possible to do that. That it was possible to well, give the government what they wanted. Have been a, a, it, I'd have to go back and listen to that audio again. I've been a little wary of doing that, considering how frustrating it was the first time through. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. But. I think what he was alluding to is that, yes, we could have disabled encryption altogether, in which case that would have made all of the data passing through the pen register device unencrypted. Hmm. Of course, it would have broken a number of things. For starters, anybody with a secure account would have no longer been able to log in. Anybody who was accustomed to logging in over SSL would have to adjust their settings and may notice something was amiss. Um, but, you know, to the best of my knowledge, that would be the only way of providing unencrypted data to that pen register device. Um, you know, so the, you could, the alternative you could, uh... would be to stick a device, and, and now we're getting out into science fiction land, but the alternative would be to stick a device in front of the pen register that decrypts everything, passes all of the data through the pen register, re-encrypts the data, and then passes it along to the, um, to the server, um, all so the while masquerading as the original user so as not to trigger any of the abuse checks. Because there are abuse checks along the way that would signal people that something was going wrong. Well, the system would it would kick in various business rules if all of a uh, sudden all 400,000 users appeared to be coming from the same IP address. Okay, so I, I think I understand now that it, it, your server, in effect, the LavaBit server, was an analogous to the following situation. You're a landlord of an apartment building, and the government comes and they have a warrant to search one of the apartments. But unfortunately, your building is designed such that all you have is one master key, like a skeleton key. And they either have access to everything or they have access to nothing. That's, that's the equivalent of what that's the lot of servers right. were like? Because, okay. because the data was encrypted, they couldn't tell until they decrypted the connection whether or not it belonged to the suspect or not. Right. So they were going to have to decrypt everything. And then their idea was, 
well, don't worry, we'll decrypt everything, we'll put it through a filter, and we'll only look at the stuff from this one user, you can trust us. Yes? Yes, but they wouldn't provide any transparency back to me. They wouldn't let me audit the configuration of the device. They wouldn't turn the device over to me and let me configure it, nor would they allow me to collect the information myself. Yeah, I mean, technically you could write such a thing like this and then you could turn the data over to them, but they had decided that they didn't want to work with you anymore. And again, I think their decision at that point in time that they said, no, we don't want to work with this guy, was ill-founded because their entire demand at the beginning wasn't properly presented to you. You know, again, I don't think they had the authority to get pen register data from you given the configuration of your business. It's all premised on the fact that you just collect this stuff as a normal part of doing business. And at LavaBit, it doesn't sound like you did. No, I didn't. And, you know, there, there are a bunch of different angles that you could take here, but you're basically making the same point that Ian was trying to make at the hearing, which is given all of the legal questions regarding the pen register order and turning over the SSL keys and the Fourth Amendment issues raised, they had an obligation to accept my compromise. And yet they continued, they refused it and continued to pursue the SSL keys. Right, right. And, and it was a very short period of time, which is something that you pointed out over at the interview with the George Mason, the um, surprisingly free podcast. You had said, it, 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 this was just a matter of weeks, and yet they acted as if you were dragging your heels forever. It's hard if you're a small businessman doing a kind of a startup like you were doing, even though you had quite a number of, of subscribers and stuff, a lot of the people weren't paid subscribers. It's not like you have all these resources at your fingertips to deal with demands from the government like this. It can get pretty intimidating, and especially if you hadn't thought about some of the legal yeah. issues before. Well, between, you know? June 28th, between June 28th and July 16th when I appeared in court, I was served seven times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I love the one where they serve you one time right after the gavels. They they, yeah. they stick, uh, they stick of, you with a uh, warrant right after. <laughs> I was served twice on July 16th and twice on June 28th. Do you have any uh, interesting server of process stories? I read in one document that they tried to serve you and you exited from the back of the apartment, but then they served you later. Did they serve you in a particularly obnoxious way or no? Well, it's kind of interesting that they put that in the official record considering that I live on the fifth floor and I have no rear exit. So they lied. So, yeah. Um, although there are probably bigger issues at play than pointing out the fact that they, you know, exaggerated my um, defiance in the official record, but they, they, from what I understand, they did try to follow me around town, and I've got stories of friends who say that they were approached by FBI agents who had a picture of me and were saying, you know, have you seen this person? And when okay. the FBI agents were asked, why are you looking for him? They said, well, we can't tell you. So, of course, now all my friends think I'm a wanted criminal. <laughs> um, but now, of course, they know the truth, so, yeah. They they eventually did catch up to me when I got home. And originally I told them, guys, I can't talk to you because I don't have counsel present. And I told you I can't talk to you anymore without counsel. 
And I started to walk off, and they chased after me and told me that they were just there to serve me. And I was like, but you served me yesterday and the day before. Right. Um, Drowning uh, in paper, as it were. So it, that's that's in terms of legal battle. Let, let's get back to the, the theory issue, which is if you are truly in a situation where if a government comes to you with a warrant – you have a choice of either giving them access to everybody or nobody. That's not a great situation to be in, right? Because, I mean, you do believe that it is proper for government to be able to present a proper warrant, you know, looking looking for some information about a criminal act. A specific individual, which is why I was, when I, even though I didn't think they had the authority to demand that I modify my system to collect the meta information on the one user. When I was facing the prospect of a protracted, expensive legal battle, possibly shutting down versus making that one concession, I was willing to do so. Um, they did have a properly adjudicated order, you know, authorizing the collection of this information on the one person. And that's why I proposed the compromise of modifying the system to collect it on the one individual. Um, right. Now, but I will that, say at that, that time, no, yeah, at that time they didn't want it. So go ahead, continue. I'm sorry. Well, I, I will say that I don't believe that there is a legal obligation for one me to collect any of this meta information, and two, for me to facilitate or, or build a system that facilitates the collection by the government. No. Um, you know, we can look to the banking regulations for an example where Congress has mandated that a business keep certain records, and we can look to CALEA for an example of where Congress has mandated that telecommunications companies build systems that facilitate wiretaps. But none of those same obligations exist for an email service business. Well, and, and nor should they, do I believe. But I'm wondering if you're going to start running into this once they figure it out because I truly think the government was ignorant in this case as to what the sort of service was that you were providing people and what you did and didn't collect. They expected that everybody always collects metadata and all we have to do is demand it and and we'll get it. And you're purposefully trying to collect as little data about your users as possible as as part of a policy. So, So here's the question. Are you going to be able to, with the new project that you have called Dark Mail, are you going to be able to make it so that an apartment building is more like a regular one where the owner could give a key to just one of the users? Or even better, is it going to be more like my house where if the government wants to search for something inside my house, they have to come knocking on my door. They don't go to you know, somebody else. I think else. it's going to be more like the latter. Um, okay. In, if dark mail works the way... Um, we're currently envisioning it, there's nothing I could have done to get them the information that they wanted because I just wouldn't have it. It it wouldn't be, it would all be encrypted. And it would be encrypted in such a way where I wouldn't even have the keys, even if I knew the user's password. Um, Right. The the password and all of the decryption would take place on the user's computer, so the password would never be sent over the wire directly. Okay. We would do indirect authentication. 
which I would have to take a little bit of a course to actually completely understand. But if, but if, if you're assuring me that it is really the idea that only I and the people that I trust would in effect have the keys to my house, I see no reason why email couldn't. It wouldn't even be. You know, theoretically, that you be that way. It would be you and you alone. And when somebody sent a message, they would encrypt it in such a way that you could only decrypt. And instead of doing the decryption on the server and sending it through an SSL tunnel like I was doing with LavaBit, now it would just go all the way through on your computer. So there wouldn't be a server that stores email either, whether encrypted or unencrypted. But it would just store the encrypted data. So just like the LavaBit server stored encrypted data, Okay, so the way it worked with LavaBit is that when a message arrived, it was encrypted at that point so that going forward it could only be read if you knew the person's password. And what would happen is they would connect to the server via SSL, provide their password, the system would store that password in memory, use it to decrypt the messages in real time, and then send them, send the plain text down the SSL tunnel back to the user's computer. Okay. Well, what's going to happen now is the message will be encrypted when it leaves the sender's computer, stored on the server. When you authenticate, it will send the encrypted data down the wire, and it won't be decrypted until it gets to your computer. Beautiful. I mean, that, that, that sounds perfect. That sounds like exactly what I think we should be able to have, which is the equivalent of your home, such that if the government needs something from you, they have to come knocking yeah. at your door. They would have to get it directly off of your computer. And, and that would be perfect. Or at the very least, figure out what your password is. Right. And, and I mean, this sounds exactly like the way that it should be. So in terms of dark mail, you say, well, if we can get it to work the way we envision, what sort of stumbling blocks are you encountering? Well, we're, we're working on two competing protocol ideas that work radically different from each other. And each one has different security properties and different um, functional properties, pluses and minuses. So that's why it's been hard for me to talk about what we're kind of planning publicly at a technical level because I just don't know yet. Um, I'm hoping that some of those decisions will be made next month. Okay. We'll, what, what is your, what's your target for rollout? And I know you don't necessarily plan to offer service directly. You were hoping to partner with other companies in offering. Yeah, Can you tell I've us a got little about, about that? a half dozen companies that have all signed up to offer dark mail accounts um, as soon as it's available. So hopefully sometime this late summer it'll be available. And I think we're going to do a two-stage rollout where I'm going to release the LavaBit code as it functioned when I shut down, and then towards the end of the summer I'll release an updated version of that code that supports dark mail along with clients to do the decryption. And that was really the stumbling block for me 10 years ago. The reason I did the encryption on the server is because to do what I'm talking about doing, not only are you going to have to create a brand new protocol, but you're going to have to write a client that supports that protocol. Right. 
And you want, of course, this to be user-friendly so that everybody could get access to it, and that's another challenge as well. Well, yeah, I've always believed that. I mean, what's the point of, you know, cryptography software that's so complicated takes a cryptographer to use it? No, exactly, exactly. So you end of the summer, maybe for dark mail. In terms of the lava bit, I mean, given your experience with the government right now, would you recommend somebody even using the lava bit protocol? Because well, then the government might come... Well, it's an improvement over mo- what most service providers offer right now. It is, but then at the same and time... And assuming it, you, you are hosting it in a country where the SSL keys can't be demanded, then it's relatively secure. Right, right. Um, but probably in most decent countries, at a certain point, it could get to the point where they would demand the SSL keys. If they understood the technology better, maybe they would make the proper sort of demand, which is to work alongside you and create yeah, well, the pen and, register and filter. Certainly, work. Yeah, there certainly are countries where the government does have the explicit authority to demand SSL keys. Britain is one of them. They have the explicit authority to demand those keys. Yeah. It's been granted by the parliament over there. I found that out recently. Now, I don't think that your case, you know, again, one of the issues with your case is because they don't, the appellate court didn't seem to take some of the issues as being properly posed to them. They just seemed to want to hang their hats on the procedure and were you in contempt and all this. So I have no idea what to expect, what it's going to be a couple of weeks from now when they issue their opinion. Yeah, presumably. Uh, from what I understand, the Fourth Circuit likes to issue opinions within 45 days. Okay, so we're so looking we'll, at mid-March at the latest. So we'll have we'll have to wait and see and see what they actually think that they've decided. But I would hate to set any sort of precedent that say, oh, it's great to go ahead and demand these SSL keys and and have that be standing in any any of the circuits here. That would be that would be a terrible thing. Go, you know, going back to Lava bit. Well, Did honestly, you... I would prefer a decision that I could appeal over one that I couldn't. And if, right. they, if they decide to issue an opinion that focuses on the procedural, it would be very difficult for me to appeal that. Although you could say maybe they weren't proper in focusing solely on the procedural issues. I know at least one of the judges sounded sympathetic because of the fact that yeah. you, had, you hadn't been represented by counsel and that normally it was their procedure to go ahead and and grant you a little bit more leeway with respect to issues being properly posed to them so that they might actually reach some substantive issues. But it's so hard to tell from oral argument what's going to happen. Yeah, it's certainly within their discretion to focus on the fact that I was appearing pro se. And therefore, you know, they're saying that I objected to the SSL aspect of the pen register order. And one of the judges seemed to think that I needed to object to the pen register order in whole or in total in order for it to be, you know, prudent to to go forward. But, you know, that doesn't to the search warrant issued under the Stored Communications Act for the same information. So there's certainly a lot of discretion there um, in terms of what they can focus on. And it could simply be a, a situation where maybe they don't agree with the government, but they also don't want to set a precedent that says that you can't demand these keys. So they may choose to punt on the issue and simply focus on the procedural. Yeah, or try to do that. Well, I'm... It's, it's really hard to predict what, what people will do, isn't it? <laughs> 
Yeah. Now, what what got you inspired to create a business like LavaBit in the first place? Um, well, it was back in April of 2004. Um, Gmail had just been created, and I was sitting around with some friends of mine, and we were like, well, we can create something that's like Gmail, but doesn't profile the users in order to target to give them targeted advertising. So right. it kind of spun up in this whole, we're going to you know, build a private, secure email service. And over the course of the next year, as I was developing the custom platform that would go on to power um, what was called NerdShack back then and now LavaBit, um, I saw a number of news stories about national security levers. And I just felt that they were unconstitutional. I didn't like the secrecy restrictions related to them. And mm -hmm. my big fear at that point was that I would be put in a position where I'd have to choose between my belief in the Constitution or going to jail because I'm violating one of these NSLs. So the reason I built LavaBit the way I did was simply to avoid being put in that position. I figured right. if I didn't have the information to turn over, then I wouldn't be put in that quandary. Yeah, and I mean, you don't necessarily want to make a judgment call, you know, for example. For, so for me, I, I've said before, if I was the head of LavaBit and it was Snowden, I, myself, I would feel like I would maybe want to resist a little bit because I like what Snowden did. I think what Snowden did was important, and I wouldn't necessarily want to help the government go after him, but you don't necessarily want to make a judgment like that about your particular customers. You don't want to be in a, you know. Yeah, I, well, I don't feel like you, it's my place to judge guilt or innocence. I mean, that's the job of a jury. Right. You know, my job as a business owner is to follow the law. And kind of why I came up with the policy of, well, I'm only going to collect the information that I absolutely need to. Because as long as I adhere to that policy, then I'm comfortable turning over whatever information I may have. Right. And yet then they came to you demanding more information. And then the question was, how can you basically meet what seemed to you to be a properly posed legal demand for this information, this information that you didn't collect at the time? It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a tricky um, problem. I, I didn't believe that the demand for the SSL keys was legal, but I did no. believe that the demand for the meta information was. Yeah, and see, I don't even think that was. And I think that would be wonderful for the court to reach that because, again, if you don't collect those bits of data as a normal part of doing business, then it's not proper to put a pen register order. They need to have a, a real warrant they eventually did finally get the warrant, but the initial demand, I think, wasn't proper. So for them to use the excuse of you not complying with the initial demand as the reason they couldn't work alongside you, it, it, it was truly unfortunate. It's, 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 it's really, yeah, it's really it a hard was, thing. If you listen to that audio, too, it's, it's like he refers to long periods of silence you know, during that two-week period when I, in which I was served seven times. Right. Well, the Monday following, uh, so I got the pen register order and the order to compel on the 28th, and I read over them the following Monday, and I emailed the FBI agents and I said, 
you know, I believe that you misrepresented my comments to the judge. Therefore, going forward, I would like to conduct all cases in writing over email at least until I'm able to retain counsel. What, quote, technical assistance do you require to install this pen register device? Because that's what the order to compel specified, that I need to provide them with, quote, technical assistance, which in my mind still was not encryption keys. Right. Right. I thought it was interesting that you brought up the analogy of a hotel room um, or, or a building, an apartment building, because mm-hmm. at least in my mind, when they first brought up the issue of SSL keys, the analogy that popped into my head was random locker searches. Right, at school? At a school. You know, you couldn't look at everybody's locker because you knew one of those lockers might contain something illegal. Right. Exactly. No, exactly. And, you know, I, I could definitely, going back to why you created LavaBit in the first place, I, I could definitely understand, first of all, if your focus initially was not being pursued by all of those Google ads or those, it, it's really haunting. You know, you search for something on the internet and then you go to Facebook and suddenly Facebook on the right has some ad that's pertinent to whatever it was that you just search for, it can get really creepy and people can be put off right away. And if if the focus is, and a lot of people don't want that, so they say, okay, I want to get away from that, you're not necessarily thinking about the government and it coming to present you with a warrant as the model for your business. You're just thinking about saving people from these creepy things that are happening to them. And, uh, you know, LavaBit, unfortunately, doesn't seem to have been designed to handle the demands of a warrant presented to you by a government that doesn't want to work alongside you to get the information it's entitled to. I mean, it's just not designed that way. You can't just give them something where they can help themselves to that one person's data. And so it's going to be great if you can do this with dark mail to get out of that quandary, so to speak. You were, you were in a really tough yeah, well, place. It's, it's a little unfortunate that it's, it's effectively an escalation. And, you know, LavaBit was the first step, right, in response to NSLs. And mm-hmm. now in response to this demand for an SSL key, the escalation is taking it further with something like dark mail. Now, tell us a bit about your decision to close LavaBit down. I mean, that was more towards the end, maybe beginning of August or so. And at a certain point, they ended up not only demanding that you turn over the keys, but they were going to fine you, what, $5,000 a day for each day you didn't give it to them? Well, what happened was um, the motion to quash was ruled on Thursday. I believe that was around August 1st. Um, the next day, I turned over the keys in paper form. Right. I, the I saw that. following Monday, Judge Ex Parte, and demanded that I be held in contempt of court because I turned over the keys in paper form instead of in electronic form. And they, quote, were unusable. <laughs> I just think it goes to show some of the fallacies in the government's argument, because if this was, in fact, information, then paper would have been just fine. It was, in reality, property that they wanted to, quote, use, and they couldn't use it in paper form. 
So at that point, they started signing me $5,000 a day. Um, I found out about that about 5 p.m. They couldn't come pick up the keys that night. I couldn't drop them off the following morning. So it wasn't until Wednesday morning that we were able to link up and I was able to turn them over. But by then, I had already shut down the business. And for me, it was a pretty simple decision because if I had to turn over these keys and I had to do it, then there was no possibility for me to change the set of circumstances that led to me turning over the keys. I mean, I couldn't tell my member of Congress. I couldn't tell the public. It was going to remain a secret. And if that was the situation, then I just didn't want to continue to operate a business like LavaBit because I didn't want to be, like I said, put in that position ethically. Right. No, exactly. And I understand it, but did you know kind of in the weeks going up to it that it was probably going to come down to that or that it very likely could come down to that? Did you give it a lot of advanced thought? I mean, I decided early on that if that if I had to turn over the keys in secret, I would shut down. Okay. Now, I was smart enough not to threaten that because it's become pretty clear if I had threatened to shut down, they probably would have gotten an order stating that I had to keep the business running. And then if I had shut down, it would have been a clear-cut obstruction of justice case. As it right. stands, they still could have charged me with obstruction of justice. It just would have been a lot harder to prove it to a jury. Right. Right. Um, now the- so I didn't exactly go around threatening what I was going to do, but I had discussed it with my lawyer when I first um, retained him, uh, which was about two weeks before all of this happened. Um, now, I, I should say that points in time when I thought I might have to turn over the keys and shut down, um, certainly when I appeared in court on my own behalf, I didn't know what the judge was going to say. And at Mm -hmm. that point, I had a subpoena for the keys, which was later withdrawn. Then I got the search warrant for the keys. And I just assumed, now that I had retained a lawyer, and he made the arguments to the judge, that this would go away. So Mm. I was a little surprised that the judge gave such little credence to our, our legal arguments and, you know, ruled in favor of the government. Um, Now, in retrospect, I'm not as surprised because I've learned a little bit more about the judge in particular, but, you know, just the nature of the circumstances behind everything. Now, the rumor that I had heard is that in making the decision to shut down your business, that you had been inspired by a particular fictional character of great relevance to me, given that I do this show inspired by Ayn Rand's ideas. And I do a lot of my legal analysis from her philosophical framework as well. Are the rumors correct? Well, I mean, I had a number of inspirations, but certainly Ellis Wyatt was one of them. You know, what I was thinking in my head when they were demanding these SSL keys and we were going through this legal fight was, you know, I didn't create LavaBit to become a listening post for the government. I created it to provide a service to my customers. And if I turned over these keys, I would no longer be providing the very service that I had promised. Right. So the idea of, you know, I don't want to be 
a government agent, therefore I'm just going to blow up my business, so to speak, um, certainly appealed to me. And, you know, I definitely remembered what Ellis Wyatt did in Atlas Shrugged, even though I read that book probably 10, 12 years ago. I'm thinking if you read it again, you'd probably find a lot more parallels to your situation dealing with the government. And maybe it would be unpleasant in a certain way at this point in time, but maybe not. Maybe it would be inspiring for the future. I, I do think dark mail, what you're describing, as far as I understand it, is the way to go. Because I don't know how long you could have avoided a situation like this, given the way that Lava Bit was. You know, the the fact that it was like being a landlord to an apartment building where all you have is a skeleton key and the government thinks that they need to go through you to get the access to any of the individual apartments. If you can, through dark mail, make it the equivalent of of all of us having our homes with our individual keys, that sounds like the best of all worlds. But it also sounds like the NSA is not going to like it and that there might be a legal battle that you have ahead of you in order to make dark mail and therefore privacy as such legal, you know, privacy. This is something I just did on a spur yesterday. I was telling my listeners, I've started a little legalizedprivacy.org. Privacy is really not legal in our country right now. Any of the means by which we would practically protect our privacy have been basically made illegal or impotent by our government. And dark mail would put the power back in the hands of the individual user in a way that the government hasn't been used to in a very long time. Well, to the best of my knowledge, um, there's no law against creating the software or even, you know, providing the service, right? Right. Um, Now, what you you raise is the idea that, you know, we go back to the mid-'90s, um, when PGP was introduced, and encryption software was considered a munition, right? Mm. And therefore, it was illegal to release encryption software onto the Internet. And we won that war, or that right. battle in the war, I should say. And if we go and create something like dark mail, it will, it will be along those, that same vein. Now, I think my bigger fear is that when you have something like the NSA with effectively an unlimited budget, it mm-hmm. truly is an escalation because all they'll do is go to Congress and demand more money so they can build bigger data centers, hire more mathematicians, and look for more ways to break the encryption that's used to protect our information. I mean, if, if this happens... First of all, do you think the public will know about it? Second of all, do you think that Snowden's revelations have done any good in generating outrage in the public about something like this? Well, there's there's a two-part question there. Um, in terms of outrage, I think countries that have a more personal and more recent history of you know, a tyrannical government, specifically with the Stasi in Germany and, you know, Russian's history with, with, for example, Stalin and how you've got, just in the last hundred years, situations where you had neighbors spying on neighbors. Mm -hmm. The idea of a government access to everyone's private thoughts is certainly outrageous. 
the United States, for all of its pluses and minuses, has had a relatively good track record of remaining open and respecting people's privacies, in large part due to the Fourth Amendment. You know, we've certainly got the Committee on Un-American Activities. We've got um, Hoover and all of the information he collected and used for political gain. Um, You know, we've got Watergate. So we've certainly got instances where government has gone too far, but by and large, like I said, we have that good track record, and I think it's because of that, coupled with the absolutely excellent spin job President Obama has done, that most Americans don't see this as a clear and present danger. The information that's come out is a clear and present danger. I will say that it has certainly sparked a debate. I think the people who are on the same side as you and me are certainly still in the minority, but I think we're gaining ground. You know, I was I was really surprised because some of the people in politics with whom I was pretty impressed, someone like uh, Ambassador John Bolton, for example, former UN ambassador, he's a pretty good Fox News commentator, and yet he was saying about Snowden, Snowden is a traitor, he's committed treason, he should be hung. This is the kind of thing that Bolton, who I normally liked, started saying. I was I was mortified. And, I, you know, I, I don't know. You know, right now the Wall Street Journal just released a story today, and I know that they're doing this basically to get the public to not worry about this issue so much. They say today that only 20% of the phone calls in, in the country are being collected, or, you know, the metadata for 20% of the phone calls. So I guess we're all supposed to relax because it's only 20% or something. I, I don't understand. People who understand the principle, like you and me, are going to be just as outraged if it's 20% of the, you know, stuff being collected without a warrant, or it's 100%. I, the principle is exactly the same, but... I don't know that the the public at large thinks in principle like that. So so your answer is really maybe public outrage and therefore increased transparency that is not necessarily going to be helping you roll out dark mail and have it be a success. Well, I mean, dark mail is completely separate. I'm really trying to attack this problem at three different levels, right? I'm trying to attack at least where I have standing the legal issue. You know, can the encryption keys for a business be demanded? But that only addresses a very small part of a much larger debate. Dark mail is really a technical solution, but then there's also the political solution. How do we get Congress to enact laws that basically legislate the kind of transparency we need in order to ensure our government isn't abusing this power. And for me, it comes down to a few things. Um, One, I don't think they should have complete unfettered access to all of the communications that flow through our country. Of course Um, not. I think they need to gain access to somebody's communications when they can prove to a judge that there's probable suspicion of wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that I'm not necessarily opposed, for example, to legislating that a phone company needs to retain the metadata records for like 30 days and that 
you know, the government can come along with a warrant and demand those records one at a time, one request at a time. Um, but, you know, there's the second half of what we're really learning as a result of the Snowden revelations, and that's... I need to be careful with what I say so I don't break any rules here, but... Okay. <laughs> which is kind of sad that, you know, I can't participate in a political debate because of secrecy restrictions, but... We don't really know how far our government is going in order to collect the electronic communications of both good and bad people. And right. I really think that we might be going too far. Right. No, and I, I mean, I, of course, think that we're going too far. And again, I keep pointing back to that doctrine from the 1970s, Smith versus Maryland should never have happened and and my whole you know quest is to get that overturned. So I think you and I are likely on the same side there, but that's a, another battle for another day. Craig in the well, chat room in over my here blog mind, I don't think that a court should be able to compel an interested third party like a business to do something in secret and have it remain secret indefinitely. I think no. if we're going to have things like FISA orders that you know, within a year of them being issued, they need to become public. Right. I think that that would be very good. I understand that there needs to be secrecy for a certain period of time so that the target can be monitored or apprehended or whatever it is, assuming, again, they have a legitimate warrant and a legitimate target. But I agree that we need we need a lot more transparency, and I think it's, it is. It's two elements. It's, it's the transparency and it's the substance. They have too much power at this point, and I think uh, both have to be addressed. One listener here in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio, his name's Craig, and he says, privacy's been made illegal in our country. It won't be tolerated here. He says, dark mail could be hosted only outside the United States. Do you think that's true? A lot of it depends on which technical implementation we go with. And a lot of it also comes down to what the courts end up ruling on my particular case. One of the the protocols that we've been working on would involve a service provider publishing the public key for an individual and signing it with their own key. So if the government could come along and demand the private key for that domain, they could start publishing fake keys for user accounts that they would want to monitor. Okay. Now, we're designing controls into the system that would make it impossible to cover that up after the fact. So, you know, for example, we'd have a permanent record of these were the keys that were published, you know, and this is who signed them. And if it came out later that these keys were published, you know, using a compromised domain key, then we would know, for example, that we couldn't host our services in the U.S. anymore. Okay. Um, so, you're, so, so your answer, in short, is is maybe depending on the technology that you end up using, which we'll find out. Let we've only got about a minute left, so I wanted you to be able to tell mm -hmm. the listeners if they want to help you with dark mail, where do they go? Um, they can donate at lavabit.com because. Um, 
been in the process of hiring and I've found out that it's going to be a little harder to stretch the money I raised via Kickstarter than I had originally hoped. Um, and once I get my team up and running, I've been busy with interviews. I've hired two people already and interviewed a half dozen more. Um, we have a number of people that have contacted me one-on-one about wanting to help, and I'm planning on putting them in touch with the development team so that they can do just that. That sounds excellent. Okay, well, thank you so much, Ladar, for sharing your story today and for talking with me and indulging my geek side. I look forward to communicating with you more about this as the case develops. Um, everyone else, if you want to talk about this, go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. We can continue the conversation there. But take care, Ladar, and I wish you the best. I'm going to be looking forward to the result of that hearing. Okay, everyone, we're out of here. I've got a few seconds. Have a good weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>